0: It's your boy, Danny Nassi. Welcome to the episode. Welcome to the episode. It's your boy, Daniel J. Nassy, New York's relentless top broker, fighting to get you the best deals in New York City. And speaking of fighters and people who are honorable and personable and honest and exceptionally caring, I have a very special guest here today. I'm not going to tell you who this individual is just yet, but I do want you to know that I met him nine years ago. Uh, He's been in the real estate game for quite some time. Uh, He's a developer, he owns and operates real estate, he has a property management company. At one point he opened up a brokerage and sold it, and we're gonna get into that story, but he's somebody that I've looked up to over the last nine years. Anytime I had a real estate related question, he was the first person I called because he's honest, he's genuine, he's sincere, he's authentic, and he was always very helpful to me. And anytime I needed guidance, I gave him a call. Anytime I had questions about strategy, he was the person who mentored me and helped me with that. And I still call him to this day. And uh, I happen to have a lot of respect for him. I happen to love him. Again, I've known this guy for nine years. And uh, you know, I bumped into him recently and I asked him, I begged him, I said, please, can you come onto this podcast because you have such an incredible story and I think it would only help so many people if they just heard your story and we can help them create aha moments. So without further ado, I'm going to ask you, my guest, to please introduce yourself.
1: Thank you, Danny. I don't know how to follow such a wonderful introduction. My name is Arik Lifshitz. I'm the CEO of DSA Property Group. Uh, DSA Property Group is an owner-operator, a a landlord, a developer. Uh, We go by a lot of different names. Uh, We mostly own and manage our own uh, residential properties. Uh, Technically, we're what you would probably consider a family office. Uh, As you mentioned, along the way, we opened up a brokerage service under... The DSA Property Group umbrella. It was called DSA Realty Services. Uh, we opened that in 2007. Uh, we grew that to about 60 agents or so, and uh, we could talk more a little bit later about how that industry is going. Uh, but we didn't. We didn't technically. We didn't sell it. We merged with uh, City Connections Realty. Uh, so I'm now a uh, minority owner at City Connections Realty, uh, 100 plus agent um, brokerage firm, uh, active doing uh, sales and rentals and commercial leasing. Uh, here in our favorite New York City. That's right, and we're gonna get into that. Before we
0: jump in, you guys, my listeners, I wanna paint a picture for you. I walked in here today, and I saw the OG of all OGs, Mr. Lee, sitting in his chair, and one of his assistants was wearing a nasty Team t-shirt, which got me very excited. I love that he was representing the brand as I walked in, and it instantly put me in a good fucking mood. And inside this studio, Lee is wearing a very nice leather jacket. He's got a polo sport hat on. He's got his red microphone on. And I'm here with Arik, and I got to tell you guys, I'm telling you right now, this guy is a 10 out of 10 <laughs> when it comes to looks. Typically he's in a very fine tailored suit today. He's got a more casual look. He's got some Nike high tops on, a gray pair of jeans, a nice button down. The hair is in perfect order. When I walk down the street with this guy, I'm telling you right now, I look like the fat friend that has a good personality. And typically most people tell me I'm a 10, but we have the candles lit, the lighting's nice, and you know we're ready to really just dive in here and have a good time with you guys. So Aric, let's go back. I want to start from high school, and then we'll work our way upwards. Okay, so were you a good student in high school?
1: How'd you know I wasn't? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was not. I uh, I don't know what it was. I was just uh, lack of motivation. I was maybe a little careless. I was immature. I was not a good student. I was. Uh, I went to a very um, uh, prestigious uh, or just difficult. It wasn't prestigious. It was just a academically difficult high school. So my point is, I was surrounded by some very very bright people. Uh, out of a class of 100, I, I think cl- close to half went to Ivy League or equivalent colleges. Um, hold on, did
0: you feel like you didn't fit in there?
1: No, I always felt like I fit in. I always felt like I could hold my own. But just when it came to test taking and grades, I just, uh, just never translated well. Um, even at times uh, when I tried hard, uh, I didn't always get the best grades. And uh, yeah, growing up, I, I did not consider myself a successful student. Uh, but I always knew and I was always very different than a lot of people in my outlook on life and my philosophy in life, and I always knew and was confident uh, that I would succeed in the world. And maybe one of the reasons I wasn't good in school was because I was just so eager to finish it and get started uh, working. Um, but I, I didn't. I never thought of school as a good uh, indicator of someone's future success. That's crazy that you knew
0: that then. You know, because when I was going through school. I was a terrible student. Um, I wasn't focused. I barely got out of high school. Um, I applied to maybe 14, 15 schools, and I got into two. And Mm -hmm. I ended up going to college at Kent State University in Ohio. And I had never even been there before. So I literally got accepted. I went to Ohio, never saw it, never experienced it. The first time I was in Ohio was for my orientation, and that's where I went to school. It was just a crazy situation for me. But it's interesting to know that you know, that you had this focus, this determination, this knowing that you were gonna be successful, that you wanted to get involved in business even though, you know, school wasn't indicating that you were a great student and I love that. So where did you end up going to school and did you graduate?
1: Yeah, I went, uh, so I went, I took a year off uh, to go to uh, Israel, which was a popular, I went to a Jewish day school for high school and a lot of, not, you know, about half or so of us went to, uh, took a year off to go to Israel to study um, which I, where I earned credits for a year, so it wasn't um, I wouldn't say I took a year off, but that was my first year of college. And then I went to Yeshiva University, uh, an Orthodox university here in Manhattan, up uh, Washington Heights, uh, where, uh, yeah, I was there for three years and, and graduated on time. Um, although there's a little story there. I technically didn't get my diploma for many years afterwards. Uh, but I did finish. Wait, on my- <laughs> I want to hear more about that. Why didn't you get
0: your diploma uh, for a couple of
1: years? You know, and here's a great introduction to the horrible wor- world of bureaucracy um, because I got uh, my credits for a year. <laughs> Uh, they were kind of empty credits in the sense that uh, they didn't satisfy any of my the requirements that I need for graduation. Uh, the school that I went to had a Yeshiva University had a Tsai Sims School of Business uh, where I, where I was, and I graduated with a degree in finance. Um, and I had to uh, you know consolidate four years worth of requirements in, into three years of, of study. Um, and uh, the last thing we had to do was was write a research paper which I didn't do on time uh, in May when I graduated or should have graduated, so I did the following summer. And I submitted it and just thought, hey, you know, I kind of finished up, I did all my requirements, I submitted my research paper, but I never actually got my physical diploma and literally took years of emails, phone calls, uh, actually this is a funny story, yeah, Um, until finally um, I got it years later. The story is every year after when I thought I graduated, I'd get a solicitation in the mail to donate to the school, and every year I, it came like you know one of those little postcards. I'd actually mail it back without a check, but I, I'd write on the on the on the, on the postcard, "I'll I'll send you a check when you send me my diploma." <laughs> and you know I never heard from them. And you know and again I just in my mind I graduated, but I never actually got the diploma. And literally, it was seven years later. I was already older, married with kids, and um, my oldest son was in school himself. And I get a phone call from someone who works at the university, who claimed uh, she was the mother of my son's teacher. So maybe she recognized the name. I don't know what. So she calls me. I'm so sorry that this has taken this happened. Let me look into it. She yeah. keeps me on the phone for an hour. Very sweet, very nice, very friendly. Um, but I just something I remember was it was a one hour. And I don't mean to put her down at all. She she helped me out. She's great. Her daughter was a great teacher. Uh, but I remember it was a one hour phone call. And I said, you know, this difference between you know. A bureaucratic world, a not-for-profit world, and the prof- and the for-profit world where, you know, I remember I was busy at the time. I just like, I don't have an hour here to spend on the right. phone just to, like, you know, shoot the breeze with you. Again, I don't want to put her down. She was great. Uh, but anyway, long story short, uh, you know, she did what she had to do. She pulled some strings, and she got me my diploma. Uh, and I wrote them my first and last check. (laughs) Jesus, that
0: is insane. What a story. At least you got your diploma, I got my diploma, So let me ask you this. When you got finished with school, did you, what were you doing occupation-wise? What was your work?
1: So I already had several businesses, you know, smaller businesses, businesses that I, uh, you know, ran, owned, operated, started. I opened up a coffee shop in my university while I was a student there. Um, unfortunately it didn't last more than a year. We, uh. We didn't realize how few students would be around for the summer, uh, so it was literally like a three-month period where there was it was dead. There was no income, no business. But uh, you had
0: this entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, we you we op- You
1: know, we were a bunch of tw- me and two friends, a uh, twenty-year-old, you know, pitchers. We uh, uh, you know didn't take a lot of capital, but we did you know raise some capital and put in put in whatever uh, funds we had, and we built the space out ourselves. Constru- you know, we got permits, we built it out, electric, plumbing, uh, you know. Carpentry work, we did the work ourselves, you know, after school, after hours. I was also on the university basketball team, uh, which took up, uh, you know, a good 15 hours or so a week. So on top of school, on top of basketball, I was trying to open up this business. We were there working till 2 o'clock in the morning, putting the thing together. And I remember the day we opened, and it was a full-on, you know, cafe, food, coffee, everything, salads, sandwiches. I remember after putting in these long days doing construction work just to get it open, We were just looking forward to finally finishing and launching. And we're like, as soon as we launch, everything will be great. Everything will be great. You know, we can finally get some sleep, just thinking about the hours. And we opened up, and it was such an eye-opening experience because the truth is, the previous three months that we were doing the construction, that was the easy time. Right. (laughs) As soon as we opened, it went went from, you know, 18, 20-hour days to literally 24-hour days. And we just worked our butts off. Um, yeah, and I learned a lot. Know.
0: People don't know out yeah, there yeah. not easy You think it's now.
1: hunky-dory. You think you're going open to the, open the doors and everyone's going to come in. And we had a great concept. You know, we're up in Washington Heights. This was, you know, from 99 to 2003. Uh, was, you know, there wasn't a lot going on there retail-wise, entertainment-wise, you know, nightlife-wise, food-wise. Um, and so we, we knew we were opening up, you know, an oasis in, in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, you had a couple thousand students that had nowhere to eat other than the cafeteria, and a pizza shop. And uh, so we thought we had this, you know, great market. It's going to be great. Uh, opening night, obvi- you know, there was some buzz, obviously. Uh, you know, everyone saw what was going on. Mm-hmm. It was also the same uh, week as the theater uh, the theater group had their play. Right. So you had a lot of people there, and it was full. The place was jam-packed. So how long
0: were you guys jam-packed and full for? Uh,
1: that, you know, it, it came in spurts, right? So if there was a good event going on, um, there was a lot of people there. Right? Okay. I remember we threw this New Year's party. It was off the hook. It was great. It was amazing. <laughs> so how long did but, that last? Uh, a year. We, we made it a year, and uh, we, we got through that first summer, and we just we just closed up afterwards. We just didn't have the funds. So what was that like
0: for you? Like, How did you feel? Like, You opened up your first business. You put your blood, sweat, and tears. You're an owner-operator. You're working 24-hour days. Like, What did it feel to you when you knew you had to fold the business? Uh,
1: it was devastating, of course. Um, but, you know, I just... I guess it. Oh, I always looked at it and said, "This was always a stepping stone into into you know bigger things for me." I always felt that way, even when I had it. I guess my goal for the business was to kind of open it, run it, learn the business, uh, and then hopefully eventually kind of hand it off, and it being um, you know a passive income stream for my for me. Down the road, Have you
0: always had that mentality that yes. you know you didn't look at it like as a failure, but rather an experience going oh, into the next venture. A thousand percent. Even okay. today,
1: right? It's just it's always there's going to be there's a future, there's a bright future. I never wanted to be an employee anywhere. I always wanted to to work for myself. You know, run my own business since I was a kid. Uh, that's something I learned. Uh, saw uh, people in my family from the older generation were always uh, all of them were entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, or most of them were. Um, even the ones who were technically uh, worked at bigger companies had their own separate entrepreneurial pursuits. Uh, I always knew I wanted to work for myself. I always knew I was a little bit of a, you know, of a different kind of character than most people, you know, to work in corporate America, it requires a certain amount of, I don't want to say servitude, but just, you know, kind of like towing the company line, you know, being a plane, a, nine, purse, to five, a yeah. nine to five. Yeah. That just, that just never really appealed different? for me. You know, I don't know. It just, it just, it's a good question. I don't know. I just always wanted to be my own boss. I always wanted to be different. I so always, tell me more about these. other I like other being businesses. different. Yeah. I don't. I like. I like. I like flavor. I like spice. You know. I just. I don't like boring. That's not to say that everyone who works in a company is boring. The opposite. Yeah. But just. That's just not who I wanted to You're be. Just an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur. Yeah.
0: So what are the other uh, uh, you
1: aside from everyone, every entre- entre- entrepreneur who had their token baseball card business as a kid, um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you know, in Judaism we have the uh, the concept of uh, a holiday called Sukkot, where you know we build uh, these huts uh, uh, during the fall season. Uh, so I had a uh, sukkah building business. Uh, I, I, I enlisted some friends to help me out, and you know, for fifty, hundred bucks, we'd uh, you know build the sukkah and then take it down. Um, you know, they weren't as excited to do it as I was. I remember, uh, one year (laughs) to take them down, there was no one around to help me. So I had to take a few down myself. I'm taking, I'm hauling these huge panels of wood, you know, taking them all. (laughs) Thank God God God. I was young and strong at the time. But, uh, you know, just, just always, always looking to make a buck. Um, and yeah, I saw, I saw a, I don't want to say a laziness, but like, um, yeah, other other my, other my other friends were not as motivated as me. Mm. Uh, that's you know
0: maybe that's part of your knowing that you knew that you were different, right? Because you can teach everyone the systems and tools of how to be successful, but you can't teach someone how to be hungry,
1: right? Yeah, I tried. I tried. I wouldn't say teaching, but you know, just guys being guys, friends being friends, we'd razz on each other. You know, uh, you know, make fun of each other. So there was a lot of you know trash talking and just you know friends being friends uh, that you do when you're twenty one, 22, and. You know, we would talk about different things, and I would always give my opinion, which was different than uh, the standard opinion. And you know, when I was younger, I would, I would debate. You know, I would, I'd argue my point. Uh, I've gotten to a point, you know, already for a while that it's just it's not worth the argument. It's not worth the fight. Uh, let the actions and the results speak for themselves. And, um, you know, so I don't I don't argue the points that, you know, that my way is the right way. And look, that just goes back, yeah. honestly, that goes back to your
0: relentlessness. That goes back to your tenacity. That goes back to, you know, you fighting for what you want and what you believe in and what you want to achieve out of your life and the goals that you want to pursue and the results that you want to get. And that's the fighting right. spirit, you know, and the reason why I wanted to have you here because people need to understand that that's the cloth that you're cut from. Now, did you grow up in a
1: religious home? Are you guys religious? Yeah, we grew up. In it was a religious neighborhood in, in, uh, it was called Wesley Hills in, uh, in Rockland County. Um, you know, technically it's what we would call modern Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and that's, that was my background. Are you still religious? I belong to a religious, uh, synagogue, uh, an Orthodox synagogue. I send my kids to a Solomon Schechter, which is, uh, technically not Orthodox, but, uh, you know, it's, it's in line with my beliefs. Uh, I believe in God. I love God. And, uh, you know, the rest is personal.
0: All right, good. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing yeah. that, my man. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit now. How did real estate come into play for you?
1: So uh, so real estate was in the blood. It was in the family business. Uh, you know just to start from the beginning, my my grandparents, uh, on my dad's side, uh, they were uh, they were both Holocaust survivors. you You want to talk about tough, you know, my grandfather. Um, you know, he survived uh, the worst of, the, of World War II, of the Holocaust. He was uh, in Auschwitz, one of the concentration camps. He survived there for, for three-plus years. Um, you know, we never heard the whole story until a little bit later, uh, after I was already married. He did one of those interviews. And, and just one story that sticks out and I want to share is, uh, you know, a lot of the Holocaust uh, survivors, they were all tattooed on their arm with numbers. And apparently there was a, you know, order to the numbers they were given And he said, on more than one occasion, he told us during this story, on more than one occasion, he was, like, literally marked for death. He was caught smuggling or, you know, caught being somewhere where he shouldn't be, which you have to do in order to survive. Uh, You know, you couldn't just, like, behave and get by. You know, you have to kind of, you know, bend some of the rules. So he got caught. He literally was marked for death. And the SS officer looked at his number and saw that it was such an old number. And it was almost like, Oh my god, if you could last this long here, I'm not going to be the guy that's you know going to send you to, to, your, to your death uh, and and you know kind of let him off and let him let him live and Can he said that happened more than you once. keep going.
0: Yeah. I mean, what does it make you feel like to know that your grandfather <clears throat> that your family went through that? Like what does that mean to you? What does that mean to the way you your perspective on life today and your outlook on you know what you do on yeah, a day basis?
1: I guess a little bit of that it, it ties into my sense of obligation, my sense of duty. Uh, not just to me and my family uh, that's already around, but to you know, my future family, hopefully, and, and my children, and hopefully, God willing, their children and their children's children. Um, but a, uh, a suspicion uh, of, of government in general, of rules in general, um, of a need uh, in life to take matters into your own hands. Um, you can't always rely. Uh, you, know, you can sit around and, you know, and complain all the time about the rules, uh, if they're for you or against you. Uh, or you could do something about it, and you know, complaining is not going to get you anywhere. You, you you have to take matters into your own hands, and, and you know, literally, you know, seize the world, as they say.
0: Exactly. So talk to me more. Yeah. Your grandfather. So he,
1: uh, so he survived, grandpa. thank God. He was in a DP camp. Uh, not to get too political, but he waited his turn in line. You know, after being in the Holocaust for literally six years, he was he was in Poland. Uh, so he was in the Holocaust, literally from 1939, the start of the war, until 1945 when he was liberated. And uh, then spent three years in a DP camp in Italy, uh, where I was told he, uh, he, was, he was a great soccer player. I don't play soccer, but I was told he was good. Uh, he literally, had to wait three years till he was able to get to, to America. Only he found a long-lost, I don't know, fifth cousin or something along those lines that, that sponsored him. Um, you know, got his green card, went to, got an education, went to night school, and became a Hebrew school teacher. Uh, he was a teacher for 30-plus years. Wow. Uh, he lived in Washington Heights. Uh, He had three children, my dad, my uncle, uh, whose name is Howard, my uncle Ed, and my aunt Zahava. Um, And, uh, you know, just thank God he's still with us. My grandmother's still with us. see them all the time. They live in Queens. Um, But the reason I tell the story is 30 years, he's a Hebrew school teacher um, and always obviously wanted a better life for for his children. It wasn't a a great paying salary, especially at the time. Um, He saved every penny. Uh, You know, your typical immigrant story Uh, You know, no luxuries in life To this day, you know, thank God They they have some funds, they have savings And they still just, they live that Austere, survivalist lifestyle Everything's for the kids Thank God now the grandkids And the great-great-grandkids even Um, So he saved every penny $20,000 over I don't know, 25, 30 years And he was able to buy a brownstone On the Upper West Side And, uh, you know, I would like to say he still owns it today. Technically, he sold that one at one point and bought another building a little bit larger on the Upper East Side, uh, which he still owns. Um, We manage it for him um, because by the time I started working, uh, which was like 2003, uh, he was literally the guy still, you know, carrying up. You know, five gallon tubs of of, uh, of spackle, you know, up to the top floor to make the repairs himself. I want to you save to save slow a down months. a minute because
0: I want to back up a little bit. And yeah. I want to talk about how this all shifted into real estate first. Okay, so he bought his own home, and then he ended up selling it, going on to the Upper East Side. How did the family get into real estate?
1: So, I guess so. so this was probably late '60s, early '70s that he had this building. That was his one building. He lived off of it, and he eventually retired off the income from that building. I don't know if that's what planted a seed in my dad's head and my uncle's head to go into real estate themselves. Uh, but my dad, you know, again, not, no, no assets, you know, no, no family money, nothing to speak of, um, was, was a good student. Uh, he always reminds me how, as a kid, he used to read the encyclopedia <laughs> for fun. Uh, which, by the way, I have a tremendous uh, love of learning as well. I wasn't a good student, but I read a ton. I love history. I love economics. Uh, you know, I have a lot of interesting academic pursuits. Uh, I just wasn't a good student. Um, he went to Georgetown Law School, uh, got his degree. Um, he went for, he got, got a second degree, he, like stayed an extra year to get, I think it's called, a, I'm getting to get this wrong, a JD or something tax related got a second law degree, worked in corporate law for about six months, said, forget this. You know, and like this is it also at this time already was married. I think he had me by then. I was, already, you know, so he had children. Um, and again, no family to fall back on for for financial help. And something told him to uh, get into the real estate game. So, again, maybe it was this, you know, watching my grandfather uh, or maybe it was just this like understanding this belief in real estate as just a state you know back then people didn't get rich off of real estate mm-hmm. um, you know that changed recently but but it was just it was a good safe solid investment yeah over time it went up and and you built assets but you know it wasn't like a huge cash-flowing business. Look, we yeah. had
0: this conversation, I believe last time I saw you, and the truth is, and Lee, I want to tell you this also, a lot of these guys that are holding real estate from back in these days, it's not that they were geniuses, it's not that they knew that there was so much value and that if they held this real estate that something they bought for, let's say, half a million in 1978 that's worth $22 million today was something that they knew that was something on their mind. Most of these guys had cash-flowing businesses, whether it was selling antiques or whether it was uh, whatever yeah. it was. Yeah, I happen- mean. Yeah, people they owned
1: the retail store yeah. uh, downstairs, and no one wanted to buy the building. So right. you know when it went up, went up for sale, they bought it, right? right. Just so they, they don't have to pay rent. Also,
0: because they didn't want to pay
1: rent. That's yeah. exactly what we spoke. So they about. paid a mortgage instead. But in everyone's wildest, maybe there were some geniuses out there. But in their wildest dreams, they never thought real estate as an asset class would appreciate so much. Right. Yeah, but back then the the fundamentals were a little different. You know, you could make a living off of it. You know, you could buy a building like you weren't earning a 3% return like you are today. Uh, and it took a lot of hard work. He started his management company. Mm-hmm. Wait, but I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. He started as a property manager. He didn't have any okay. money to buy buildings. Um, so he started as a property manager. Uh, he was managing buildings in the Bronx. And he tells me this, and he's a tough guy, my dad. He's a tough, tough dude. Uh, he tells me this story. I hope he doesn't get embarrassed. How many people listen to this again? <laughs> <laughs> a lot. Dad, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, he tells me a story. He is, you know, a very proud guy. He tells me a story of, again. You know, Georgetown Law, two degrees, and here he is managing buildings in a rough neighborhood in the Bronx. And he got into some fight with a tenant who, as he tells the story, towers over him. You know, a good foot taller than him. Uh, you know, twice the size. And the tenant thought my dad said something disrespectful, and literally, like like out of the movies, picked him up from the collar, like off the air, you know, uh. like like you see in the movies, like just holding him up, face to face, like I'm going to kill you, and like the super came running and like told the tenant, hey, "What are you crazy? Put him down! They're gonna they're gonna take you away! They're gonna put you in jail! You nuts! You nuts!" And you know the guy like you know put him down, like kind of ran away just to make sure that you know in case the cops That's came. That's such a New York story. Yeah. Not, not that my dad uh, would, would ever call the cops on anyone, of course not. You know, but you know, but he was, but as he was saying, you know, as he was up in the in midair, as he sell, tells it, he goes, "What am I doing? I have two, you know, law degrees from Georgetown, and here I am taking my life into my. I have kids at home, a wife. What am I doing? But thankfully, he stayed with it." Um, And his big moment, his big aha moment, and he was able to pick up a a partnership interest on on a couple small deals. So him and some friends, you know, five, $10,000, you know, you you find four friends like that, you know, you bought a building and you own 20, 25% of the property. Um
0: meanwhile there's a lot of people that do that today still.
1: Yeah, no, sure. But but back then five, ten thousand was all you needed. Yeah. You know, now it's a lot more. <laughs> um, Damn right. Yeah. <laughs> so as he yeah, so so his big aha moment, you know, he was running he had his he had an office which he shared with other people. They took an apartment in one of the buildings, you know, one friend had the bedroom, two guys shared the living room, and his office was the kitchen. Right. So my my memories are, you know, going to work with my dad in the Bronx and, you know, hanging out at the kitchen where his desk was. You know, it's his desk in the refrigerator. That's hilarious. Um, so, uh, but his big a so this is already late 80s, was, uh, um, you know, the Bronx had a certain value and, you know, Manhattan had a certain value, but there was this neighborhood in Manhattan, neighborhood in Manhattan called Alphabet City in the East Village that, uh, you know, I talked to some of my friends who were a little bit older than me, you know, they freely admit that there was... No one went east of First Avenue yeah. back in the day. It was just a very scary, dangerous, very place. sketchy. Um, now I love, but it. yeah, but not for my dad. So he and he looked at that area and he said, "Look, you could buy buildings here for the same, you know, relatively the same price as you're buying, you know, the Bronx buildings. Yes, it's not Fifth Avenue, but it's it, it's a big discount to Fifth Avenue as well." He goes, "I'd rather be in downtown Manhattan than you know in the Bronx." So whatever interests he had, I think he sold or, or put together a few dollars. And again, the same thing, took on a couple new partners. And uh, bought, you know, started buying buildings in these village. Again, ba- these buildings were burnt out. They were, uh, you know, uh, possessed by squatters. It was a lot of hard work, and you couldn't just go in and kick people out. You still can, obviously, but it was just, when I'm talking about kicking people out, I'm talking about squatters, drug dealers who take over apartments and operate their business. It's fair to say
0: that, you know, your dad at this point bought these buildings and was managing these properties as well. Hands-on. Okay, Okay.
1: Office within one of them. Uh, He took me to to a building once to look. I remember it was a Sunday. Oh, you have to go to the city. I have to go to work, which he didn't often go in on Sundays, but this one he did. He took me in. And uh, you know he goes, oh, all right. You know, guess which building's ours. So I, I was, I don't know which one. He goes, you pointed to this building on the corner. I said, oh great, dad, that's nice. I don't know how old it was, eight, nine. I said, Where's the other half? The whole side <laughs> was missing. Because <laughs> that's why we're here. There was a fire. I was like, oh okay. Um, <laughs> well, you're thinking, dad, why'd you buy the building that went on fire? <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: was but a then I understood.
1: Investment. But that was, and that was, that's what taught me as a philosopher, You know what? When you're not well capitalized, you know, you have to buy the shit. Part of my French, right? You have to buy the crap because you have to make your money has to go farther, and that's where you can make money is you know buying something crappier that need that could use improvement, improving it, and you know reaping the rewards afterwards. So when
0: did you get the real estate bug yourself?
1: Always. It was just always. It was just I always just liked the real estate. It was just it just seemed like a very good business to get into. And again, even when I got into the business, it wasn't a, an industry where you saw rapid wealth appreciation. To me, it was a long term. Game And I still view it that way. So I Because
0: you're a real real estate investor. You know, most people that are in this game, that know this game, that understand the value of this game, understand that you buy low and you hold. Yeah. And that's it. And you never yeah. sell. Unless you're going into a bigger deal and you want to raise Yeah,
1: there's always opportunities to, to sell. Point. We've sold a couple things and maybe we're going to sell something again soon. Because every now, you know, especially today, we get all, you know... We're not special. Everyone does, but we get you know a ton of solic- unsolicited offers to sell our properties, and every now and then, one of these offers comes from a respectable guy and or girl, and we'll take it. And you know, it's just too good to pass up. Uh, and we'll take it, like you said. Uh, you know, try to find a bigger deal.
0: Right. So when did you get into the property management game? When did you get into becoming a deal junkie? When did you get into developing? Let's get into all that. Yeah.
1: Okay. So after college, I spent a year doing real estate finance uh, at Greystone Company. They had an office in Bethesda. Um, and uh, that 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 was you know the corporate world that didn't work for me. Um, I wanted you know I was hungry. I wanted I wanted to grow. I didn't want to you know climb a corporate ladder. Um, I didn't want to work with my dad at first uh, at all actually. And uh, I remember I came home for Passover that year. Um, it was my first year, and you know we're just talking, and he just dropped on me. And, and I was living in Washington in Bethesda, working in Bethesda, and you know he was living in Rockland County. And he goes, oh hey, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you know retiring and moving to Israel. I was like, whoa, that's, that's a pretty big move, Dad. And by the way, I'm the oldest of six children. I've, you know, a lot of younger siblings. Uh, I'm 17 years older than my youngest brothers. So at the time, I had like a four-year-old, five-year-old brother. Um, and it was a pretty big shock. And he goes, listen, if you're not happy, I, I, you know, in in the corporate world, come with me. We'll, we'll work together for a year while I figure this stuff out. You know, he never wanted to be, a, a, you know, a huge. Conglomerate, you know, he was very happy with his place in life. He'll be the first to admit uh, that that his success uh, surprised him. Um, you know, so he was happy with the buildings he owned. He was. Did you able guys
0: work well together. Not to cut you off, like when you did work that year together.
1: Uh, no. Right. I,
0: mean, I guess you know we've we've talked about. I this. knew
1: that. I knew we had a, a, not a contention. We, we love each other, but we're very we're two very strong personalities. You know, we never ever 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 fought over money. Ever we still don't, uh, you know we'll fight about um, you know should I buy the two percent milk or the one percent milk for the coffee you know that, that that's a fight we could have you know yeah. uh, should I make you know traffic right driving should I, should I get in the right lane or the left lane you know that that's a fight but that's just our two personalities we love each other we get along great but no working together was not I, I knew we'd have a lot of these uh, challenges and also for myself I always wanted to be my own person you know working for yourself includes working you know family counts as a boss I
0: gotta ask you a question just off the side real quick, you know, because I always run into people and I had somebody interview me recently and one of his first questions were, you know, did you come from money or did you come from a good family or did you come from poverty or were you poor? And I think a lot of people don't understand that, you know, when you're not coming from anything, it's much easier to go from zero to hero as opposed to, let's say, walking into a family business that's already established. There's several ways you can go. You can go in there and you can fuck up the whole entire business. You can go in there, you can just manage it and maintain it. Or you can go in there and you can grow it and make it bigger and better. Right? So, what are your thoughts on that? Do You, you think- nailed it.
1: You nailed it. That, that's exactly right. Uh, I never, but we always kept the businesses separate. We technically call ourselves a family office. But did you
0: ever sell yourself short? Like, did you ever feel like, uh, People were judging you because you come from a family business and didn't Man. respect maybe you as much. Had you not come from a family business, you ever get that vibe? I got that vibe a lot, uh,
1: Danny. It took me so long to get over that. Yeah, yeah it was such a. It, was, Today, it, it still does. It, no, it's, like, it's still do? in the back Feel of my bad? mind.
0: Feel bad that you know what are you gonna do? Feel bad that your dad worked his fucking ass yeah. off and built the business. No, you're fucking. I'm proud not gonna.
1: Him. I'm not gonna apologize right for 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 his success. He earned it. He worked hard. Um, but you're right. For my own self-will, for my own self-appreciation, I had to do it on my own, and um, and that was very necessary for me. And yeah, going into a family business, you know, people roll their eyes, whatever. It did bother me, and it still does a little bit. I, I, again, I think I got over it, but you know, in the back of my mind, it's still there. Uh, so I'm, that's and by the way, that's what drives me: constantly growing and constantly proving myself. But um, you you're know.
0: not in anyone's shadow. So you said you wanted to be yourself. It, you you mm-hmm. didn't want to be you didn't want to be known as your father's son. I got quotes up. You wanted yeah. to be known as Arik, exactly, in you know, his own stand. Yeah, that, and that's
1: why I did my own my own things, my own projects, and you know. So the way we kind of worked, I started with you know managing his buildings, and uh, there was there wasn't a lot of money there. Listen, he did okay for himself, but not enough to you know support me and, right. and my five siblings. Um, so it was always known, no matter what I do, whether I worked for, with him, for him, on my own in a company. Uh, you know, hey you know, God forbid something happens, medical bills, this and that, you know, I have someone to fall back on, which he didn't, right? But, you know, it was always about making it yourself. And you just made a point, though, about wealthy families, not wealthy families. You know, no one knows what people have. And I've seen, you know, whether it's friends, colleagues, you know, very wealthy people who raise their kids like they have nothing. And, you know, people who aren't so wealthy who raise their kids like they have everything. And you see it, you know, you see how kids are, you know, some are spoiled, some are not. It's not a reflection of how much you know wealth or, or income the parents make you know it's a reflection of the way the parents raise the children Agreed. um so you know so it was, it was always about hey, you got to make it on your own
0: so how did you make? a fucking name for yourself in this industry
1: if you think I did then uh, let's have a party I think you did (laughs) thank you that's very kind I know you
0: did I don't think you did I know you did (laughs) thank you and I wouldn't be coming to you for advice all the time and I wouldn't respect your opinion and you wouldn't be the first person that I literally call when I have a question or that I don't know something because I trust you and I know you're honorable and I know you're honest and I know you have that fucking relentless side of you that's about helping people that's about caring that's courageous that is imaginative and that knows how to resolve issues. I love that about you. And I look up to you for those reasons, I admire you. So what did you do, because I want my listeners, the people that are listening right now, there might be people out there right now that have a very similar story to you that can either go this way, which is fucked up, or they can go this way, which they can grow and be like Arik. So what is it that you did that helped you create a name for yourself, a brand for yourself, a business for yourself? I wanna get into that now, because I don't have a lot of time.
1: All right, thank you. Uh, well, the first is you got to check your ego at the door. You know, there's no room for that. You have to start at the bottom and work your way up. Uh, so for me, that was property management. That was the that was the avenue I chose. And we both can agree that that's a thankless job, It right? is a thankless job, especially when I started in property management. You know, we weren't managing luxury properties. Now, these were East Village properties mostly with a, a, spat, a splattering elsewhere. But our target tenant is, you know, these aren't the luxury properties. Let's put it that way. They're not, you know, we take pride in, in our ownership, but these are very affordable for most, you know, New Yorkers. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is a thankless job because you never, you rarely hear from people when things go well. You always hear when, when things go wrong. And I always say, you know, we're not an insurance company. You know, we, we take our job seriously. We'll respond to problems as soon as they happen. But I can't prevent something from happening. You know, I can't prevent a Hurricane Sandy from coming in and flooding your basement. You yeah. know, that's just, that's an act of God. You can't, can't do anything about that. But when it happens, hey, we're on the spot. We're there. We're fixing it. We'll do what we can.
0: And I know you care. There's a lot of property managers who could care less. Like me, myself, when I had my property management company and I had a building that was run on oil, for instance, and the boiler went out. I couldn't go to bed unless I had petro there 2 3 in the morning fixing it especially when there's kids in the building and they need hot water to get to school in the morning and yeah. I know plenty of people that are out there and I know you know them too yeah. that are landlords that don't give a shit. That's and correct. It's a sad thing. Yeah. So how did you start getting into doing your own deals? Yeah.
1: Okay, good. So 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 I had you know I had I was making a small salary uh, 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 Managing my dad's, but that was my base, right? Managing uh, the buildings in the portfolio at that time. But I always knew I wanted to grow, so you know I started talking to brokers. Hey, what's out there? What can I, what I, what can I look at? But I was some, you know, at the time, what 23, 24 year old kid. No one's, no one's really taking me seriously. I didn't have any capital at my disposal. You know, but I was trying to trying to bring on friends and family partners. You know, people with a, you know fifty thousand dollars to invest in the deal. Um, you know, piece a few of those together, and you know, and I'll run the building and. You know, it was like a chicken and the egg. Oh, I'll invest with you the money when you find me the deal. Oh, you want the deal? You have to show me you got the money. Mm -hmm. So maybe I was kind of wasting time for a while, but I wasn't because I was learning. I was making contacts. I was learning, and people started to see, oh, here's this guy, Arik. He's calling. He's interested. And I was also testing myself, right? Oh, this deal that I wanted to buy in 2004, what happened to it in 2006, right? What happened to it in 2008? Was it a good deal? Was I right? Was I wrong? Um, So I started kind of looking, messing around. Uh, what I was able to do, and this is, you know, how we met, was, was I was able to take on a few management contracts. So mm-hmm. there was no ownership interest, but I was able to, you know, bring in new buildings for management. Uh, so I was bringing in some extra income into the into the company, which, and again, like the way we worked it out with my dad, like that was mine, right? It was separate. Like it, what what was already coming in was his, but all the new stuff was, was you know, that I brought in was, was mine. Um, and, you know, we have a very complicated uh check and balance system with money going back and forth, uh, reimbursements, this and that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, it's all separate, though. So so I had some extra money coming in, and instead of going out and partying and, and upgrading my lifestyle, um, I borrowed against it. So if I was able to make $1,000 a month on managing this building, I said to myself, hey, that's $12,000 a year I can afford to make interest payments on. And I eventually uh, got into a deal. I borrowed, I think, 50 grand and I was paying the interest off with the, with the management fees that I was bringing in. And then this deal that I bought, that I, I think I bought a 3% interest for, for like 50 grand, um, that was another deal also, more management fees. And uh, we worked that building hard, we, we made some money on it, and we refinanced and pulled some equity out. I got you know a chunk of the change back, and then said, all right, great, let's do this again. And then I borrowed like 150,000, and bought again a 3% interest in a larger building and same thing right more management fees coming in more again kept my lifestyle low um, and uh, and and you know just just extra money so was you always was lived in- below your means you made right. the
0: sacrifice of not going out not and I being took a big loser. risk by
1: borrowing money paying interest on it through the added income that that deal would produce and it paid off and it paid off over time right you just have to you have to believe and 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 they did pay off and we were able to recapitalize with with new debt and Pull out some money, and then in 2007, I started the brokerage business. That the goal of the brokerage business was to you know generate income that I could then use to buy buildings with. Yeah, Uh, it turned out to be the opposite in the end because, as you know, you know, building a company is not as easy as it seems, and you know we were growing and we constantly then same thing, right, leveraged all the income into future growth. So I remember we started with three people in a tiny studio apartment. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that first check we got. It was great. Um, and But we, I, I never really took money out of it. I was just always kind of funding future growth and growing. The, I saw opportunity in the brokerage business. I kept growing it and growing it. We, uh, and we made a lot of mistakes right we at one point went to like five different offices It's all small little offices not studio apartments but small retail spaces spread out around the city because we said oh, we're doing a lot of rentals we got to be close to the neighborhoods where we're doing these rentals let's open up five offices strategically in locations where we're going to do a lot of business but managing five offices was a was a nightmare so we eventually closed a bunch of those down consolidated uh into one beautiful office and I remember in 2012 we built like out this you know great uh, Five thousand square foot retail office in the East Village, right by Union Square on Twelfth Street. I
0: remember uh,
1: that was a corporate office there. That was probably about the time we met. Uh, we then opened up a second office, which was the cr- you know crowning achievement for me in in, in the brokerage business because uh, we opened it in one of my favorite buildings, uh, Carnegie Hall Tower. Yeah. Uh, my uncle, uh, you know, has an office there, and I remember as a kid going to visit him, uh, and I always wanted to be in that building, and we were there. Um, unfortunately, the brokerage business changed. The fundamentals of that business changed, uh, at least unfortunately for me. I saw the writing on the wall. You know, we were DSA Realty. Some people knew who we were, but nowhere near as many people as uh, those who knew, um, you know, Rob your Dallas, firm, uh, Corcoran, Corcoran, and Element. And, and, you know, as soon as – like I remember, like we were – we were very good hiring new people out of real estate school, training them in rentals and hoping to, you know, uh, transition them into sales and maybe even commercial and other things. And, you know, it just uh, ha- you know, it happened once, it happened twice, and then it was already a handful of people, like our top guys who we were and girls who we were very bullish on, uh, you know, would go f- leave us for better offers elsewhere. And I, you know, I can't blame them. You know, we weren't, we weren't, you it's know. It's just part of the game. That's just part of the game. And then... The splits, you know, kind of, you know, started getting out of hand. So we couldn't make money if you're, you know, paying the agent seventy or eighty percent, which is now what the top agents are demanding or yeah. more. I don't know if you're getting a good deal or bad. We're not going to yeah. get into, we're not gonna get into your, your business. But, but, but you know, the splits have, the splits have gone up over the years, and we just couldn't compete with that. Uh, so again, we saw the writing on the wall. Uh, I Had this great opportunity. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever met my partner, uh, David Schlam at City Connections. Great guy. Uh, an amazing, uh, you know, CEO of a brokerage business, which is very hard to find. Uh, we, you know, we always hit it off as friends. And I had an opportunity to kind of, you know, merge with him. So it took a lot. And by the way, this was never a business I was very, I was never involved in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always kind of something I was, you know, helping, uh, you know, the president, and we had a you know a few managers and a good we had a great team. I loved you, our you were team. Overseeing your I was team. overseeing. i yeah, go in once a week for we have you know strategy meetings. I was I was I was involved, but I was not hands on day to day. So when
0: did you decide to sell? Uh,
1: yeah, so it was, uh, it was was it two years ago or three years ago? Yeah, it was about two. I think it was two years ago. Uh, January around January, we we sold. We, we merged. Uh, we closed down our our, our operation. And um, we brought everyone over, or most of the people came over with us. We lost a few, which was understandable. And things have been going great. Uh, you know, City Connections has a great model. Uh, they don't compete with the uh, the other firms because it's a kind of a hybrid, high split, full service model. And uh, we have something special there. A lot of his agents have been there for a long time. He's this year we're celebrating our 30 year anniversary. Uh, so the company's almost as old as I am. And um, and I'm 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 pretty much hands off, you know. But I love I love I love the culture there. I love the people there, um, you know. And and I love the fact that I, I freed up time to uh, pursue also on you know on, on the landlord side of things, yeah, development definitely. side. Of things. I mean that's an
0: amazing yeah. amazing story, you know. And uh, you know it's very respectful. And I love the fact that you know you always keep yourself open. I love the fact that you are the type of person you don't know what you don't know. So you're always, you
1: know, eager to get educated and to learn. I love to something. learn the hard way. It's my favorite. It's almost like it's almost a sickness.
0: It's not really because, you know, sometimes when you learn the hard way, you have the perspective and you understand the value of when you actually do learn and you do make it good. Yeah. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. Not not to hate on other people, but but I do, I do dislike when, you know, people I, I come across. You know, it's important to plan, it's important to strategize, it's important to prepare. But, you know, what I'm talking down upon are the people that spend too much time planning, too much time strategizing, and they never get up off their asses and do it, yeah. right? To me, it's just like, get up and go. Yeah, go do you gotta it. execute. And gotta by the action. way, you know, I have a great support system. It's not just my dad and my uncle and, and the people around me who I work with, by the way. We haven't mentioned them. Uh, but also a lot of partners. You know, these are people who are partners with me for a while already, you know, we, we've made money together. Sometimes we've lost money. Well, no, we haven't. Thankfully, we haven't lost money <laughs> yet together yet. But, you know, we recognize it's it's a big picture, you know, not a specific deal. Um, you know, they hold me back sometimes, you know, and I'm happy to call them and ask them their opinion. And they'll say, oh, well, have you thought of X, Y, and Z? And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I, I thought about it, but I haven't looked into it yet. I will later, you know. But it's
0: nice that you have, like, people surrounding you that are also willing to push back.
1: That's important. And it's
0: nice that you have the respect that you know that you're surrounded by smart uh-huh. people that... You know, that maybe you're not the smartest person in the room, so you have to listen
1: to them and you want to listen to them. And it's not smart, by the way. It's experience, right? So you learn from other people's experiences. You know, I got into this business in 2003. My dad, you know, who started before my uncle and, and, you know, some of my partners who've been doing this, you know, since the, the 80s, some even before the 80s, you know, 60s, 70s, they have an experience, you know, that I don't. They have a wealth of knowledge of knowing what the real estate industry was like at a time that, you know. When it wasn't always so good. Yeah,
0: and you can leverage their mistakes and curve your mistakes yeah. and you know, go even further faster, right? Yeah.
1: And by the way, I need, I need them too, right?
0: Let me ask you a question. I want you to picture yourself. You're in your 90s, okay? You're in your deathbed. Yeah. Sorry to be so
1: bleak. Can we say 120? Your wife is there. <laughs> 120, okay? You're Thank 120
0: you. years old. Your yeah. wife is there. Your kids are there. Your grandchildren are there. Your Beautiful. family. Beautiful. Beautiful. They're all surrounding you. It's your time to go. What kind of advice, what kind of nuggets of golden information would you share with them? What would you say to them at that moment with regards to, it doesn't have to have anything to do with wealth. It doesn't have to have anything to do with business or money, but if there's anything you would leave back for them that was so important for you to share with them before you go, what would that advice be that you would give them?
1: I don't know why "seize the day, popped into my mind, but uh, it did. Uh, There's so, I don't know, there's so much, but yeah, you gotta, you gotta love life got to be happy, you got to enjoy life and family are more important than business. You know, business gives me uh, a sense of duty, a sense of responsibility, uh, a chance to feel accomplished and happy with myself. Um, but that's nothing like family. You know, uh, I remember working when my kids were much younger, uh, when my oldest was, let's say, still, you know, in the crib, you know, there wasn't much interaction for me to do. So, of course, you know, I could come home, I could see him, I could play with him a little bit. Um, But now that the kids are old, there wasn't a lot of father-son interaction or father-daughter interaction with my daughter. Um, Now that the kids are older, you know, I can be involved in their lives more. And you know what? If it means missing out on a business opportunity because I'd rather, uh, you know, be home for Little League practice, you know, that's something I'm going to do. And I'm very proud of myself that I can do that. Um, I also, like my oldest son is 10 now. He's going to sleepaway camp. This summer, and it's bugging the hell out of me. (laughs) So I'm gonna miss him. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I can. But they start to mention it to me. I'm like, no. But it gets you (laughs) thinking, right? Okay, well, he's 10 now. College is eight years away, and then he's out, right? So it's just, you know, so I see this like lifetime shift with most people. Like, you know, there should be that swath of years where, you know, you are family oriented in your home. And you know what? One day when those kids are out of the house, you can go back to working, you know. The longer hours and you know, and, and, and be more committed to your work because you have less uh, of the day to day family obligations. Well, you know, so I look it, it's a it's a it's a it's a you know, it's a curve, you know. Yeah,
0: well, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here with Arik, and again, this is your boy Daniel J. Nassie, top relentless New York broker fighting to get you the best deals in New York City. And you know, just to recap, think about this Arik went to school wasn't the most dedicated student, uh, but always had this knowing that he was motivated to do business, to be successful, to be an entrepreneur. Can you imagine being that young and just having that knowing? Went to college, took years to get his diploma, <laughs> You know, shared the hardships that his grandfather and grandmother, what they had to go through, the Holocaust, what that means to him, how that's changed his perspective on life and how to approach each day with love and with conviction and with dedication, with tenacity, and then leaving college and, you know, starting his first business, not realizing what it takes when you have to roll up your sleeves and get your knuckles bloody, get your knees scraped, and the amount of hours, because your business is only going to pay you as hard as you work your business, right? Nothing's going to work out for you unless you work. And I think uh, Arik made a good example of, you know, being able to get out there and you know taking action with your life. And next thing you know, you know, his father has got these law degrees and is well educated and decided to get himself into real estate because the corporate life, the nine to five, the J-O-B, the acting for just over broke wasn't the kind of life that he was trying to live. He wanted financial freedom and he wanted to give the best to his family. And most people from an older generation, that's the way that they show their affection is by providing. And so luckily his family gets into real estate and they're very smart about it. They end up going into the East Village, which was used to be called the Alphabet City over the Bronx, because there was more value there. And today, they own and operate properties. They have a property management company. They're developers. Arik made a name for himself, and he continues to make a name for himself. He opened up a brokerage, he sold that brokerage, and I remember talking to him just a few years ago, and I remember the market, the commercial side was a little soft, and uh, you know, most people I was talking to were saying, yeah, there's no deals out there. But when I talked to Ark about it, he said, look, it's kind of hard to find deals, but there's a lot of deals that are falling in between the cracks, and those are the ones that I go for. And there it was again, his relentlessness, his fight, his hunger and his excitement for doing real estate. He's one of the most enthusiastic, wonderful people I know, and I think I respect him most because I know how much he loves his wife, I know how much he loves his kids, and I think that you guys should really understand when he says that he's proud of himself, that he's able to choose family over a business opportunity, says a lot about him because there's a lot of people that get into business that become deal junkies, that become, uh, you know, that money becomes such a priority to them that they forget what's important, and Auric hasn't, and you have to remember that too because those are the words that he's leaving uh, for his family before he goes is to love your family and to always put them first. And so, Arik, thank you so much. I feel honored. Thank you so much for making the time uh, for being the here. The honor
1: is mine. The pleasure is mine. And I want to
0: ask you if people want to, uh, you know, learn more about your properties or you know get into one of your properties, where can they find you?
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm very, I'm the easiest uh, guy to reach in real estate. Uh, anyway, our website is dsapropertygroup.com. My email address is arik a r i k at dsapropertygroup.com. Uh, I'm happy to just, you know, talk shop. And uh, it's what I love to do. Yeah,
0: thanks so much. And I just want to remind you guys, if you want to follow me, you can do that on Instagram at DNassi. I normally don't plug my own stuff. Twitter, Danny Nassi. Facebook, Danny J. Nassey. You can subscribe to me on YouTube. You can go to my website at com. And I want to give a special thanks always to the OG of all OGs, my man Lee. He's been here for 20 years at Jambox Entertainment Studio, 352 7th Avenue on the second floor. There's no other place I would call home. So if you're out there and you ever want to do a podcast, you ever want to you know, lay down some tracks, you ever want to sing, you have to see my man Lee and I promise you he's going to treat you like family. You're going to feel like you know him for 10 years and uh, I just want to thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you leave a positive comment. Make sure you give me five stars. I'm doing this and Rx doing this and all the guests that I have here are doing this for you to help you change the quality of your life and help you have that aha moment. Thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you. Love you guys. I appreciate you guys. See you on the next one. Thanks for having me.